are surprises something that you look forward to with anticipation, or at least find a little bit intriguing? Or are surprises something that make you feel kind of nervous or uneasy? According to the dictionary, a surprise is defined like this. A brief emotional state experienced as a result of an unexpected significant event. An unexpected significant event. That's something. What, what is that emotional state generally like for you? Is it something you look forward to and welcome? Or is it something you would just assume and avoid? How do you feel about surprises? Well, okay, you might say it kind of depends, I suppose, on what that unexpected significant event is. I mean, nobody likes to be surprised by tragedy or loss or things that are hurtful to themselves or to people around them. And we've been through enough unpleasant surprises. There's some of them perhaps particularly profound. It's understandable that we might become a bit anxious or skittish when difficult things happen in ways that are different from what we always thought they would be. And when those are particularly dramatic events, it can take a while to heal or recover from the surprise. And of course, we, because we live in a world where things are not always what they claim to be, we also need to be careful about uh, the choices that we make. We need to be wise and thoughtful about what we do and how we go about ordering our lives. And our awareness of that can sometimes become so magnified by our own anxiety. So when it comes to surprises, sometimes even good things that catch us by surprise, that otherwise might provide some great opportunities to learn or to grow or to evaluate or maybe even gain some new insights, they can become things that at best worry us and at worst can cause us to react in ways that are not particularly helpful, sometimes even with fear. And because what it means to be surprised is that things are not the way we expect them to be. That's what a surprise is all about. Surprises can actually be pretty hard on those of us who like to be or like to imagine that we are in control. Or we find a great deal of security out of things we all figured out ahead of time. And we don't appreciate it much at all when those things get tampered with. Which might at least partially explain why it is that sometimes when we are surprised, we react by being irritated, or sometimes even angry. And so, having it all figured out, or being in control of what we rely upon for our world to be okay, surprises that suggest that things might not be just the way we thought they were, or that we might need to rethink something. Or we might need to think about something in a new way. But not always things that we welcome. And when we find ourselves slipping into that kind of a reactive mode, not only can we miss opportunities to see fresh new insights and grow in ways actually that strengthen and reinforce the things that matter to us the most, but we can even find ourselves beginning to imagine all kinds of other things. Evil thoughts, threats, conspiracies. 
and sometimes we can wind up missing the proverbial forest for the trees without even realizing that it's open. And of course, if you ever try to point out that this might be happening when it's taking place, you're very likely to be accused of either being deceived or being part of the conspiracy yourself. Go ahead and try to reason with that. And so surprise can become a tricky experience to deal with. It's not always easy. It's harder than it might first seem. But the neat thing about surprise is it can also be an idea that provides us with a kind of a neat perspective or a good set of lenses by which to look at things. Because when you open the pages of Scripture and you begin to look at the lives of people whose stories are recorded for us there in the Scriptures, one of the things you begin to notice, one of the things you might even be surprised to discover, is that their experience everywhere is all about being surprised. The Bible is full of surprises. A surprise that reveals not only a God who frequently works in ways that no one was expecting, but a God who in the process also has a tendency to create either great joy or consternation in the process. There are also some risks for Jeff's how how we respond to the surprises can make all the difference in the world. It was actually quite some time ago, I think it's been more 15, 20 years ago, when I first began thinking about this. And it actually happened as I was working with Jerry Kavisky, helping him to teach a section in the senior Bible class of world religions. And in that process, one of the things we were doing is we were looking at the scriptures. We were trying to look at ways that God related to them. So he's been listening to my voice this morning. Thank you. To those who uh, were not officially part of God's people, excuse me for this for a second. Interestingly enough, when we began doing that, I began noticing what scripture actually said. There were some interesting things that began to surface for us. And one of the first things that we noticed was that when Paul decided that he was going to establish that people whose story we followed all the way through the scriptures, God does something kind of unusual. God goes to the Babylonian Empire, and there, in the midst of a family of idol worshippers, invites Abram to come and follow him. So, like he says, that he will show them when he gets there. But as we'll see in a minute, this is not really the only option that was open to God at the time. But we'll get to that. In any case, the other thing that's surprising about the story as we look at it is that Abraham actually braved this time. Despite all the turmoil and all the upheaval that must have caused him and his family, he decided to go. And so the Jewish people are born. Because, as we know, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and you know how that goes. Well, of course, the many sons didn't have the whole point, it took a long time. But even before we get to the part of the story that has to do with the sons, which has all the whole set of surprises all of its own to deal with, Abraham, or Abram still this time, finds himself confronted with another quite challenging situation. There's something kind of a curious thing that takes place. You'll remember that uh, when he was traveling, he was traveling not just alone, but he was taking his family along. A rather large extended family. And 
something that I'm talking about. It's something like a small town moving across whatever the landscape lines on its way from the place that I'm sort of showing. This, this family, this extended family, many of the animals, and this sometimes happens in situations like that. It seems that people are following the laws, which is not in law that well. You can read all about this in Genesis chapter 13 if you want the details of the story. But to shorten it up a bit, Abram's nephew walked his family, and those that were with him were picking quarrels with Abram's family over all kinds of things. And uh, finally, Abraham began to see that the current arrangement just wasn't working. And so, in order to keep peace, he decided it was time to put everyone back in their own place. So, he gives lots of choice. And so, and his family decided to settle in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because when it comes to real estate, location is everything. So that's where they went. And they even his family continue on towards Hebron, where they're going to make their home. Okay, by the time we get to chapter 14, we discover that Lot's most important presence when he goes to Sodom is to find himself caught up in the midst of a battle that is broken out between a whole bunch of kings with ungraspable names which result in Lot and his family now being carried on captive, along with a lot of the other citizens of Sodom, to wherever they were carried on captive to. Well, Abram hears about this, and so he decides to gather up the 318 training men for his household. So I guess he just happens to have sitting around as one does. And with some help from the neighbors, he goes on after them. He rescues Lot and those with him. He brings them safely back to Sodom. And it's here that the story really starts to get interesting. The part that I want you to notice today. When he gets back, first of all, the king of Sodom, who apparently has found no need to go after his own citizens, comes out to greet him and thanks him for returning the citizens and all to everyone. He's delighted to have them all back. But then in verse 18 of chapter 14, we read about what happens next. Genesis 14 and verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram, my God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, I don't know if you just caught what happened here. This is not just surprising, but why don't we often think about things? This is downright shocking. How does Melchizedek get into the story? And where did this guy come from? Because Melchizedek creates all kinds of problems. First of all, Melchizedek is the king and priest of the most high God and creator of heaven and earth. Well, how can that be? In order to be a priest, you have to have a priesthood. In order to have a priesthood, probably need to have an organized religion of some sort. That's the idea we have one is apparently already worshiping the same God that Abram is. But if Abram's the first Jew and there's no Jewish communication in it and no Israel and no priesthood, then where did this guy and his priesthood come from? What is this doing in the story? There's probably a lot of ways you could try to sort that piece out, but one thing it seems to suggest is that there may very well have been people in Palestine who already were part of the organized religion, that were worshiping the same God that Abram was, which Abram seems to recognize because he pays time. But aside from what we have in this passage, 
So God again surprises us by who He is talking to and who He is working through and who He invites His chosen people to learn a few things from. Talk about surprise. Apparently, God doesn't know if you're not supposed to do it like this. He didn't get the memo. You're supposed to go through established chains. Only through the chosen people that you can learn anything. Well, it's a good thing he didn't because in spite of his chosen status, Abraham was still not getting it. And he probably wasn't going to get it any other way. He needed to hear what Abimelech, who was not of the chosen people, had to say. Just clearly what Genesis tells us is that God was right there in the middle of that. God was directing it. As we go on, we can notice example after example in the life of Abraham and the lives of his descendants all through the Old Testament of ways in which God continues to act in ways that his people do not expect. Sometimes he's clearly pointing out dangerous things that you need to avoid and that need to be taken very seriously. That's for sure. But there, he's also acting in ways that shows that he is increasingly active in the lives of people outside of the community of Israel as well. Unfortunately, the history of the children of Israel is such that reflects their tendency to take their chosenness or as a reason for self-congratulation and as an opportunity to serve. And as a result, things went very differently for the nation of Israel than what God had hoped for them. You might say that their idea of Israeli exceptionalism did not serve them very well. And so the nation was supposed to be a blessing to others all around them. Too often, only some of theirs is a means to their own ends. That could only end their self interest. And this is the opportunity offered them to actually make a difference. Which is why some of God's greatest surprises, like the response of the Assyrians of David to the message of Jonah, when they repented and actually turned back to them and experienced God's graciousness to them. For Jonah, it became an occasion for angry sulking over the way that God put compassion for people ahead of this pandemic balance sheet. Even like cows better than letting Jonah know that he was right. Jonah would have forgotten that the purpose of prophecy was not about proving who was right, but about inviting people to come and to respond. Even when surprises God offers us are amazingly good. We can still find people, chosen people, committed people, serious people, religious people, responding to the surprises in very unfortunate ways. And perhaps nowhere is this going to clear focus than when we get to the New Testament. When we notice the response of people to the greatest surprise that God has ever given any of us. Not only was the long anticipated Messiah not just an amazing person that God was going to bless in some sort of special way, but this actually was Jesus. This was God in human flesh among them. This was not what they expected. And just as surprising as that was the path this Messiah decided he was going to follow, which, in contrast to everybody's expectations, was followed by the way of the cross. And in the process, actually, ushering a kingdom that was more amazing and more rich than anything they ever could have anticipated. 
surprise that was implied that Jesus was indeed good news of great joy for all people, but for others. But for others, it became an evil to be resisted and undermined everything that they had staked their hopes on. For God had stepped out of their box, the box that they had tried to confine them in. And as a result, they wound up missing the best surprise of all. In fact, this is the theme that we've been noticing across the Gospels as we've been spending some time in the class on exploring the Gospels. The theme is woven all through all four of the Gospels as they repeatedly repeat over and over again that it was those who have been considered, who would have been considered by most as the outsiders, that's the least likely to get it, that are the ones who are most responsive to the teachings of Jesus. While those who were seemingly on the inside, the ones who were best positioned to understand how everything was going, the insiders, the chosen people, the remnant, who kept on missing what it was that Jesus was trying to say. I was reminded about this together about a couple of weeks ago when we were together as a, as a staff. We take some time every once in a while as a church staff, about once a month. Pastors get together and spend some time reflecting on passages of scripture together. And on this occasion, we happen to be looking at the story of Jesus healing a crippled woman on the Sabbath, which is found in Matthew chapter 13. This is actually just one of dozens of examples from the Gospels that I can give you how this all works. But because this one does such a good job of showing all of the elements of what I've been talking about, I thought I'd just a moment this morning to share it with you. It's spoken to me powerfully recently. It's time to share it with you again this morning. It's found in Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 10. Here's some mark. Sorry, the records it. On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by the Spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. Well, nothing too surprising about that so far. As the story continues, when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Can you imagine 18 years of not being able to stand comfortably? A debilitating condition that keeps you bent over, that keeps you in pain, that makes it difficult for you to move around. And then, as verse 13 goes on to describe it, it says that he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up. And praise God. Talk about an amazing, overwhelming surprise. When she went to the synagogue that morning, she had no idea that this was what was going to happen that day. And out of nowhere, God surprises her. Since she straightened up, and she praised God. Well, as it turns out, there are other options. Verse 14. Indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Because it's surprising the way that God would have to put things like this theological box, a Sabbath box, but then the synagogue leader was very different. His response is very different than the response of the woman. 
this was not the kind of surprise that he welcomed. Not his synagogue. To which Jesus responds in verse 15, You hypocrites. Doesn't each one of you on the Sabbath have time to prophesy the donkey and stall and lead it back to get a water? If you did not this one, a daughter of Abraham, who sent me his cup down for 18 long years, he said, Free of the Sabbath day from my downtown. Now Jesus is looking at all of the eye and saying, Really? Is that what you think this is really all about? Really? Well, verse 17. But he said all of this as a book as they should have But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things that he was doing. Same surprise to very different responses. One point out of the recognition of God's amazing graciousness, which often comes to us in unexpected ways, that which reflects the gifts of the character of God. And one which arises out of a sense of anxiety that places my being gathered up and ordered and organized and figured out and pictures exactly the way I've always thought that things should be. I vote what is really good for people. In a way that ironically and make it devotion to God actually denied the central character of God that Jesus came to reveal. And of course, we look back on stories like this and we say, well, of course, how could they have been so short sighted? How could you have missed that? But you know, I think sometimes we don't take seriously enough our own far sightedness. And by that, I don't mean our ability to be able to see what's coming down the line somewhere and anticipate the future. I'm talking about the visual distortion that's the opposite of nearsightedness. The first kind of design I'm talking about is our apparent ability to see things at a distance with a fair amount of clarity, like the story in the scriptures. But when things are closer to us, sometimes right in front of us, everything suddenly goes off blurry and it's not quite as focused as we thought it might be. But all kinds of reasons for why it doesn't apply to the scriptures. Despite our assertions that we can see just fine. See, in our anxious responses to this prospect, things just might not be the way we always thought they were. Good things sometimes leave us to get knocked over and broken. And sometimes in places, people get hurt. The Gospel of Mark records a little incident that happened one afternoon among Jesus and his disciples that uh, I want to share with you because I think it gives us some helpful insight into how to put all these pieces together. It's an incident that's recorded in chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel. And here's how Mark tells the story. Verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop he was not one of us. Sounds like John is concerned about the influence of people who could not be in the group. It probably would not have occurred to him that there might be things he could learn from somebody else who's not a part of this group. At any rate, John is not going to stop to this. 
Well, notice what Jesus' surprising response is. Do not stop me, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can do the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is with us. Come on, wait a minute. Do you know what Jesus said there? I think that's significant because too often what we think we hear Jesus say is exactly the opposite of that. As if he said, whoever's not a part of our group must be against us, right? But that's not what verse 40 says. Listen to it again. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you that anyone who gives you a cup of water in my hand because you belong to the Messiah will certainly be rewarded. You see, Jesus is reminding them that God is not confined to our boxes. He is working all the time and in all kinds of places and among all kinds of people, probably in ways that we don't even know about, and we don't have to be threatened by that. In fact, as he says in chapter 10 of the Gospel, in verse 14 of the Gospel of John here, just to bounce over there for a moment, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And in this part, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep. And I must bring them to you. And so it's okay to recognize that when you see it. And more than that, to be glad about it. See, enter into dialogue with those people to be sure that not only is there with the things that we have been blessed with, but well, we should do that because we've got some great stuff to share. But also, if we're willing to listen, we might even learn some things from them as well. We might even learn some things about those things that we keep on getting wrong over and over again. Oh, what about the subject? You know, they have to be with me. Evil is quite tricky, you know. And it is quite true, it is. With anything to be distorted. And Satan is very good at what he does. But when it comes to deception, I think if you will look carefully and thoroughly at the scriptures, the real heart of all deception from the Garden of Eden to the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus to the final events of gross history as we understand it now and as we know it, is still unbearably about failing to see and respond to God's character and his love as it's revealed to Jesus. The greatest surprise of all time. And to make it primarily about anything else is to join that little warm pepper of those who have joined it over the years who have continued to miss the forest for the trees. In fact, what we sometimes miss is what Jesus goes on to say in the very next verses from that passage, which is those to Mark 9, is that therefore we should be very careful that we do not cause all of us to stumble by doing just that. Because causing people to stumble is what we do when we miss the forest for the trees. When we get it all turned around backwards. And I can tell you from the first 30 years of my ministry that I spent in youth ministry, that there is nothing, there is nothing that causes little ones to stumble more than the way in which we sometimes miss the forest for the trees. Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. 
But you know, the good news is, is that the unexpected quality of surprises can often turn out to be more about what than anxiety. That's what God intended. Good things often come from very unexpected places. Abraham came out of Babylon, after all. Repentance came out of Nineveh. Jesus came out of Nazareth. Now, Chesapeake came out of Babylon. We don't have clue. We just don't have Who knows? People out of our group. Maybe even a Jesuit might write a good book now and then we could learn something from. Wouldn't that just shock our socks off? It might be our neighbor who may not even know that believe in God at all, but who lives with genuine compassion for others. They might be able to teach us a few things as they look at the response to the God they may not even know they're responding to yet. And that's really if you just share with them and show that we can actually learn something from them. We might find that they might be surprisingly willing to listen to what we might have to share as well. See, what the scriptures make clear is that God is not limited to looking at our hearts, which might be why the author of Hebrews reminds us of Hebrews 7, and it's going to be an interesting chapter we'll get later today, that in Jesus, we do not have a high priest like those of the Levitical priesthood. We have a high priest, surprisingly enough, after the order of Melchizedek. Surprise. It is, in fact, surprise that the scripture message is all that. So I thought it was all just about that. God wasn't speaking to anybody else. God says, surprise. So we thought it was okay to treat people like that. God says, no, surprise. So we thought that was how we're supposed to do business. So it says, no, that's what God says, no, surprise. There are many places in our lives where God is just waiting for the opportunity to say, Surprise! It's not like the way you always thought it was. You can do better than that. On so many levels, God is a God of surprises. And He's waiting for us to experience it with joy and delight, not with resistance and fear. So, how do you feel about that? Surprises can be tricky things to manage in our lives. But you know what? Whether we respond with delight or consternation is entirely up to us. But I gotta tell you guys, we continue doing whatever he wants to anyway. You know, the title of C.S. Lewis's biography, which is the story of a young atheist who eventually found himself embraced by the grace of God, and who actually became one of the most insightful, powerful voices for the work of God in the 20th century. Called just about anyone who lived during the hundred years. His biography is entitled Surprised by Joy. Surprised by Joy. What a title. That we might live in the same awareness of God's surprises. As some people are writing the biography, the title might be out of the entitlement. It's what my prayer for me and for all of this would be this morning. 